everybody. This is the Kentucky Guy, and you're listening to the Red Pill Current News Podcast. Today's episode is part two of our interview with the wrongfully accused of murder, Christopher Scott. Today's episode will pick up where episode one left off in this dramatic true story of racism, wrongful doing, murder, and so much more. I hope you guys truly enjoyed today's episode, and let's get to it. And when my brother wrote me, I wrote him back and I told him, like, I didn't want to get too high about it. I didn't want to get too low about it. I said, because you got to understand, I had cops testify on my behalf. I had cops testify on my behalf and a judge in the jury didn't believe them. So what makes you think they're going to believe a drug addict? That, you know, that's in prison already. They're not going to believe him. So I already knew it was kind of like water under the bridge. Wasn't nothing going to be done about it. So now it's um, 2006. Now, 2006 is when things changed for the best for everybody in Dallas, Texas, and other major cities because the first ever African-American district attorney was elected in Dallas County. Dallas County is a red. Dallas County is red. Seriously. Seriously red. We did not think an African-American Democrat would win this election. And he ran on wrongful convictions. He stated, we looking at it on the news. He's saying, if I win DA, his name is Craig Watkins. First African-American district attorney in the state of Texas history. You know how big the state of Texas is. Oh, yeah. So for this to be the first African-American ever, it set a major precedent for people like us. And once we are watching it on TV, we sit in the day rooms. It's election time. We want things to turn over. And this guy won. We could not believe it. You would have thought that the prison I was on won a prison Super Bowl or something. You heard a lot of hollering and yelling and jumping up and down and beating on lockers because you know why? We finally had somebody in position of color that has enough power to oversee things and change a whole lot of things that's wrong with the system. And he stated one his first interview. When I get in the office, some accountability is going to have to be held. And whosoever was wrongfully convicted through DNA, write to my office and we're going to start, you know, we're going to start, you know, testing this DNA. Now, his first day in the office, they wanted him to throw away all the DNA so he couldn't retest the DNA to help men get exonerated. He, they didn't want to see that happen. He said there was a red flag. He said immediately when he t- they told him that, he did his first DNA case in probably about three months. And the crazy part about it, the guy who he actually got out of prison at that particular time was in the cell right next door to me. 
And a guy woke me up one day. He said, Chris, I'm gone. I'm gone. I'm like, where are you going? He said, I'm going back to Dallas. I'm going to get exonerated. I'm like, what? He was like, yeah. He was like, look, that black DA in Dallas, Texas, write him. He's not playing. In less than six months, this guy had exonerated at least 12 people just on the unit that I was on. It was 12 men that were exonerated before me that came off the same prison that I was on. We was on this prison at the same time, and we knew each other. We worked in the kitchen with each other. We worked in the field force with each other. And I was thinking now, like, wow, I'm going to have to write him for real because if he getting these people out, maybe he'll have some justice for me. But in back of my mind, I'm still thinking about, you don't have any DNA He's testing DNA. So I'm sitting up there and it's crazy because I see the same people. I see the same because when the the African-American DA got elected, he started this integrity unit, conviction integrity unit. And it specifies only about wrongful conviction cases. And you got to have a team of you got to be one attorney, one prosecutor, one investigator. And one chief, they filled all those four positions. And each time somebody got exonerated, I saw these same four people on TV saying, we the one got them exonerated and this is what we had to do. Other people, if y'all feel like y'all exonerated, write the DA office. And then they came out with a series called Dallas DNA. It was a TV series for a while. Dallas DNA. So, now I'm I'm kind of like overhyped. I'm like, I'm gonna write the DA, see what he can do for me. Lo and behold, I did not know he had took my case to the University of Texas of Arlington, UTA. He took it to an undergraduate law class and was like, hey, this is our first non-DNA case we're ever gonna do. Work this and tell me what y'all think about it and let me know what y'all what y'all can do about this case right here. Let me know. So now a year passed, a couple of years passed, now it's 2009. So they done dug in at this time, but they just, you know, a lot of people is fighting against me and Claude getting exonerated or getting our case reheard again. So one day, this little kid, she was like 19 years old, 18 or 19 years old, little white kid. She came to see me in prison. And it was so confusing because didn't nobody know where I was supposed to be. They were like, hey, you're supposed to be in a barbershop. Oh, they called you for the infirmary. That whole day was pretty screwed up. And that little kid had been waiting in a visitation to see me for over two hours, but she wasn't going to leave. She was dead determined. And so... She, um, they finally figured out why I was supposed to be. Oh, now you got a legal visit. It's a turn in there waiting on you, waiting on me. I'm like, for what? That we don't know. So when I walk in, I see this little white, you know, kid. She's like a motorcycle rider. She got a little spiky hair, little motorcycle jacket on. And I look at him like, what do you want? <laughs> I mean, it was like, what do you want? You know, you're a baby. And she said, well, Mr. Scott, uh, I want to talk to you about Claude Simmons. 
I said, Claude Simmons. I said, oh, I ain't heard that name in a minute because me and Claude, we did not communicate when we was in prison. She said, well, I think it's time for you to do the right thing. I'm like, what you mean? She said, I think it's time for you to confess to the crime so Claude Simmons can go home. I'm like, nah, wait a minute. No, no, no. I said, I can't confess to a crime that I did not commit. I'm sorry. I, that's something I will not ever do. I can't confess to something I didn't do. She said, well, you don't think Claude did have done enough time for being wrongfully convicted? I'm like, yeah, I think he's done enough time for being wrongfully convicted. And I feel like I've done enough time from being wrongfully convicted, too. She said, oh, so you saying you wrongfully convicted. I said, I'm telling you I'm wrongfully convicted because whatever happened to the Hispanic drug dealer that got killed, I didn't know about it. I didn't have anything to do with it. Didn't participate in it or anything of that nature. And she just looked at me. I say, better yet, this is what we can do. You can leave the same way you came. Because ain't no ill will, no ill feeling, whatever, because you just trying to help somebody get out of prison. And I, and I, I applaud you on that. But if you want me to confess to this crime, I'm sorry, because I'm not going to do it because I didn't commit this crime. And it's crazy. We both got up and we walked away from each other. But the doors was locked. They couldn't get the doors open because they was locked. And me and her just sit up there and stared at each other like, we was in a Western Dulaw, like we was going to see who can pull a six urns and fire the quickest. That's how we were just sitting down, just looking at each other. And then she approached me again. She said, Mr. Scott, sit down and have another conversation with me. I'm like, no, I refuse that because, you know, you asking me to confess to something I didn't do. Sorry, I don't have no conversation for you. She said, just talk to me again. You know, I'm asking you some additional questions. I'm like, no. And I think it's the way she said, please. She said, please, Mr. Scott, sit down and talk to me again. I said, okay. I sit down and talk to you again, but on one condition, what? Never ask me to confess to a crime I didn't commit. She said, okay, then let's talk. We talked for additional four. I mean, we probably talked to additional two and a half, three hours. And. You know, I told her I didn't do it. I didn't know I have anything to do with it. I didn't know anything about it. I don't know the drug dealers that got shot. Uh, I, I don't know none about those people. I'm not in that kind of, that's not my kind of life. I don't, I don't, I'm, that's not what I do. And she was like, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it to Craig Watkins and see what he say. And then I get back to you. I go back to my cell. I'm thinking like, wow, you know, is, is this really real? Are they really looking into our case or what? Because she's telling me she's a, a undergraduate student at UTA. I'm like, I don't want to put my life in no 18 or 19 year old kid hand. I'm sorry, but if this is all I got, then this is all I got. I got to ride with it. So I'm sitting in my bunk. I mean, it's probably about a few weeks later. Um, I get a letter from the district attorney's office. And when I go down there to get it, I know what's inside of it. And I was like, I was scared to open up the letter because I didn't want to fear rejection again. I didn't want to be disappointed again. And it's an officer that knew me because I did my whole 13 years on this one unit. And the officer looked at me like, inmate Scott, what's wrong with you? You all right? I'm like, man, look. This letter here, probably have my future, my life in it, 
if I'm going to be outside of these bars, I'm going to spend the rest of my life behind these bars is in his letter. He said, this is what I want you to do. He said, take a deep breath. Go over there in that corner. Ain't nobody going to mess with you. Open your letter, read it. And then whatever the outcome is, man, you just got to deal with it and just got to accept it. And I prayed over the letter before I opened it. Uh, asking God, like, let this be the thing that's going to help me get out of prison. And lo and behold, when I opened it up, it stated that we have reason to believe that you did not commit this crime. But what you have to do is come back to Dallas County and have a deposition. And this attorney has been appointed to you, Michelle Moore. Now, Michelle Moore is the attorney that I had been seeing on TV getting all these other guys out of prison. I was like, man, I'm going to go home. I prayed for this attorney and God granted me my wish. He gave me this attorney that's been getting all of these people out of prison Maybe she can get me out of prison. And my mom had been real sick at this particular time. And I got a visit from her. This was like her first time ever come to see me in my whole 13 years. Her first time. And when I walked in the visitation, I saw my mom. And I hugged her and I hugged my brother. We sit down. And my mom had this smile on her face, but also she had tears in her eyes. And I'm thinking the tears was just being happy to see me. She hadn't seen me in all of these years or whatever the case may be. She would just have to see her baby boy because I'm the baby out of the nine. And she looked at me. She grabbed my hand. She kissed me on my jaw. She said, I can't stand here too much longer because if I do, I'm going to break down crying. But this is what I'm going to tell you. This would be the last time I see my baby boy behind in prison wearing all this white. And she got up and walked away. That was her last word she said to me. She went and got in the car. I looked at my brother. He looked at me. He said, yeah, this could be it. He said, but the only thing you got to do is pass a polygraph test. And I told him, I said, bro, I asked for this. 13 years ago, he said, yeah, I know. But he said, but now they're serious about giving it to you and you got to pass it, brother. I said, man, have no doubt. I'm going to pass this test. I'll be home soon. Just get ready. I went back to my cell. I hadn't really cried yet, like cried, cried. I hadn't did it yet. And it's like those first tears I had when I first drove up in prison, it wasn't a hard cry. It was just a couple of tears fell down because I knew I had to be a man. So I couldn't let them see me cry. So I was like wanting to cry, but couldn't cry. I was like, man, maybe I just got that hard. My heart is just that made of ice, like an ice box. You know, it's the sound like it's an ice box where my heart used to be. Is that where, I, and I was looking like, is that where I'm at now? Because I was never this person before I came to prison. So now I'm sitting up, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Two weeks later, they tell me, Christopher Scott, yes. They call it H-O-T. It's called hot. It means hat on tight, meaning you leaving. And I got a bench warrant saying, bench warrant to Dallas, no return. I was like, oh, man, I'm going to go home. When they say no return, I'm not coming back to prison. 
I was ecstatic. I was happy. I was overjoyed. And that long, and when I got in, in back of the, you know, the car coming to back to Dallas, and I was passing those trees as we driving down this lonely, long road to get to, you know, some civilization. And you saw those trees flying by me. I was like, you know, it's like when when Moses parted the Red Sea. Don't look back, because if you look back, this is what's going to happen. And I told myself, once I got in that car and left prison, I was never going to turn my head to look at that prison ever again. And I didn't, because I actually thought that something may happen if I actually looked back. And I just kept looking forward, and eventually I made it to the Dallas County Jail. And as soon as I walked in, I saw Claude Simmons. He was there as well. And we both just embraced each other. We hugged each other. We was telling each other how we can't believe that this is actually about to happen. And if it do happen, what would be our plans when we get out? And I told him, I say, look, my plans was already made up when I was in prison. I said, I'm going to start me an organization, brother, that's going to help innocent men and women fight for their freedom like I'm fighting for mine right now. I say, that's the name. That's what I'm going to do. And I already have the name of it and everything. I said, House of Renewed Hope. I say, because when you look at it, we used to call prison a house. And the only thing was going to help me survive in that house I had to have some some type of renewed hope. And I just put those letters together, House of Renewed Hope. That's how I came up with that name. And he was like, that's a good name. That's some good things to do. I like, yeah, let's just see how this outcome is going to come. Eventually, it took us a few weeks to uh, do the polygraph test. But the first thing came up was the deposition. Mike Ware did the deposition. He was the prosecutor. That, that helped us get exonerated. And he said, Mr. Scott, we actually believe that you commit, that you didn't commit this crime, but this is a deposition that we must have with you so we can learn what you did that night and things of that nature. And I think the deposition was about telling a polygraph tester, this is the question that you should most ask him about, is these specific questions right here. So I did the deposition. Went to my cell. Um, like I say, two weeks later, it was it was crazy. Now I'm up. I'm going to take my polygraph test. And now I'm so nervous that I don't want to fail this polygraph test because I know it's dealing with your body, the way your body reacts to certain questions and things of that nature. So, excuse me, I'm not really scared. It's just that. I know this is my life. And if I fail this, I'm not going to ever get another opportunity at life again. And my attorney came to see me. She said, look, it's 14 officers inside of this room next door. And all of them here to watch you fail because they don't want to admit they made a mistake. So do whatever you got to do. Pass this test. I say, look. You have no, they, nothing to worry about. I'm 150% sure I'm going to ace this test. Don't worry about it. She said, well, I'm going to go. I'll be doing things when they, when y'all finish 
I get that they'll let me know what happened. It took about six hours for me to do um, that polygraph test. And it, it, it was crazy. That six hours, you know, it kind of drained me because, you know, they try to see, you know, how well you hold up to a polygraph test because it's a beat down. And after doing a six hour polygraph and he came back and told me, like, I concur. You know, the chief of police concur, the DA concur, the chief of the polygraph department concur that you was telling the truth, that this case you had no knowledge of, you had nothing to do with. And right now you can say you're a free man again. And he said, I'm glad you passed it because it set a precedent because you are the first non-DNA case to ever be exonerated in Dallas County history. He said, you made history today, Mr. Scott. How you feel about it? I said, I feel good, but I'm going to feel even better when I get home, when I actually have my freedom, when I'm no longer wearing white clothes. And he was like, it's just a matter of time. And maybe, you know, the crazy part about that was they was actually looking for the second person, which was D-Mite, Derrick Anderson. They wanted to get him off the streets first. And, you know, the, 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 the strangest thing that happened in that whole process, the DA came to see me. And the DA was like, I want to talk to you, you know, prior to the polygraph test. He said, because if I let a guilty man go, all the things that I worked on, you know, to be in vain. Because you don't want to let no innocent person, I mean, no guilty person go free. He said, I just wanted to come and look you in your eyes and ask you, did you have anything to do with this case? And I told him I didn't have anything to do with it. Um, I had no knowledge of it. And once I passed this polygraph test, you know, I'm going to prove to you that you let the right person go because I'm going to make you proud of me. And that was the DA, the African-American DA. I looked up to him because I was like, the only reason I'm doing what I'm doing is because you actually started this. And now, you know, I'm going to be one of the person that keep this going on. I'm going to keep it going on, you know, until, you know, I take my very last breath. And he looked at me and said, Miss Scott, I believe you. And like I said, I did the polygraph, came back, you know, that I didn't commit the crime. And all these cops in the hallway wanted me to shake their hand after it was over with. And it was funny, like the detective, the, the investigator that brought me by, James Hammond, he was like, you don't have to shake the hand if you don't want to, you know, don't worry about it. And I say, no, nah, I don't want to shake the hand. I just want to go so I can hurry up and, you know, get my freedom again. And he was like, let's get in the car and go. He got in the car and went. We got in the car and went back to the jail. My attorney came to see me. That's when she said they had to get this other guy off the street before they was actually able to let me go. And I was kind of mad about that because I was like, why do y'all have to get him off the street before I get released? I'm not scared of this guy. And this guy's not going to harm me. He's not going to bother me because I'm going to be able to protect myself. And they were like, nah, that's just, this is just the way we work. This is just the way we do things. I think about maybe a week or so later, you know, they had gotten him and saying, you know, Miss, she came to see me and say, Chris, we got him, you know, you'll be exonerated in less than 48 hours. And it happened. I was exonerated like 48 hours later. And one of the 
greatest part about it, I know I was going to have this thousand pound brick lifted off my shoulders. Like, you know, I can breathe again, like a newborn baby. But at the same time, the lady that actually said I committed this crime, she was at my exoneration and she had a lot of officers around her. And I was like, man, they guarding this lady like she's, you know, the gold at Fort Knox or something. But, you know, they knew that this was a drug house. They knew that this lady was a drug seller. They knew that her husband was a drug seller. But y'all still around this lady like she hasn't did anything wrong, like she's not guilty of something. She's guilty of sending the wrong person to prison for 13 years. And as I was leaving, at when the judge hit the gavel and said, Mr. Scott, you know, you are free to go. And we apologize for putting you through this. And I was able to stop and tell the Hispanic ladies, Cecilia Escobedo, like, you know, if you ever be put in this position again, you know, think hard, you know, about seeing somebody committed a crime against you that they didn't. If you're not 100 percent sure, don't say these individuals or this individual or individuals committed this crime against you if you're not 100 percent sure. Because you got to understand, you took 13 years away from my life, but not only my life, but you took 13 years away from my kids' life as well because they suffered. And as I spoke to her about that, you know, I got up and I walked out the courtroom, you know, a free man. And the first thing I wanted was a steak. You know what I mean? Uh, I wanted a big, juicy steak to like, because eating prison food wasn't always good or healthy, but you just wanted something different. And a good friend of mine, uh, Stephen Phillips, he was in a, he's an exoneree. He did 28 years for a crime he didn't commit, Stephen Phillips. And he told me, he said, hey, the, you know, when the walls go to closing in, you know, call me and I'm going to try to help you. And I was like, I'll be okay. But, you know, being 39 years old, have to live with your mom and sleep on the couch and on the floor, you know, things just didn't feel right for me to be there. You know, I love my mom and I want to be around her every chance I got. But like you say, the walls go to closing in. You need some peace. You need you need some quiet and you need some solitude. You want to, you know, get away from everything. So Stephen Phillips came and got me. And when I called him, he hurried up and came and got me and was like, him and his girlfriend were his fiance. And I took a couple of, you know, I took enough clothes to last a few days. And he was like, no, go grab all your clothes because you're not coming back. Stephen had already been compensated. So Stephen had this apartment in Carlton. It's an upscale, you know, neighborhood, middle-class neighborhood. And, you know, gave me a nice plus, you know, two-bedroom apartment, fully furnished, uh, you know, a lot of groceries was inside of it as well. I didn't have one for nothing. And he took me to the bank and he gave me $10,000 and put it in my bank account. And he was like, this will last you until, until you get compensated and just give me my $10,000 back. But not only that, he paid the rent for the next three months. Uh, he paid all the bills for the next three months as well because I didn't have any money. Uh, he made sure I had everything I needed, and me and Stephen be, became best of friends as we are now. You know, I consider this guy my best friend, but at the time that he asked to help me, 
I didn't really want this help because at that particular time, I didn't trust white people anymore. It was just, you know, that cut and dry. Like, it's hard for me to trust white people since, you know, they are the ones that did this to me. So it took me a little time to warm up to him, but I warmed up to him. And like I said, we became best friends. And when he gave me that place, it was able, I was able to sit back and just think about what I wanted to do and the things that I wanted to do. And a lot of things that they was out, other exonerees was already doing was going to Austin, lobbying for laws and bills to be passed. So I got involved in that first. I started going to Austin with, you know, speaking with our legislation. We had got several laws passed. We got a compensation law passed. We got a law passed where they have to keep recording interrogations. They can't take recordings out of interrogations. We got one passed called a double blind standard where the arresting officer can't be in the room while they're doing, you know, either a photographic lineup or a regular lineup. Because a lot of times the arrest, the arresting officer can be inside of the room. So now there are no they are not allowed to be inside of that room anymore. That's those are the things that I was a part of a help helping getting passed because I had to testify in front of the Senate committee behind that. And it gave me time to really formulate House of Renewed Hope. And, you know, it was crazy. Like my first interview, that, that's what I said I wanted to do is help those that couldn't help themselves. So I ended up starting a House of Renewed Hope. And everybody that had anything to do with my exoneration, from the prosecutor to the attorney to the investigator to the chief, you know, a lot of them, you know, volunteers their time with my organization as well because I wanted to get the people that has the most knowledge about how can we get cases overturned. So once I got them on board, it was like off and running. So we end up getting a lot of cases to come in. And then once I got out, I started filming a documentary called True Conviction. And it took us five years to make True Conviction. And True Conviction is about a documentary of just showing you the inside of how Has Renewed Hope runs. And it took us on a journey of finding other wrongfully convicted men as well. Um, it was three of us, me, Stephen Phillips, and Johnny Lindsay. Johnny Lindsay passed about four years ago. You know, it was heartbreaking, but, you know, life goes on because we we keep continuing to fight for, you know, equal justice in people that was wrongfully convicted. And that documentary took us five years to make. We actually uh, premiered at Tribeca Film Festival. Um, we got an honorable mention at Tribeca Film Festival as being, you know, the best documentary there, which was pretty cool. And, you know, out of, you know, in between those five years, we was working on certain cases. And one of the cases that we worked on was Isaiah Hill. Isaiah Hill was, you know, pretty illiterate, borderline kind of mental retarded a little bit. Um, he had did 41 years before we was able to get him out of prison. And he was in prison for a robbery that he didn't commit because if you watch True Conviction, you'll see that we actually ran down the person that actually committed the crime. We interviewed him on camera. He said he didn't do it, but off of camera, he said, yeah, he did it. He the one committed that crime, 
but he said he wasn't going to confess to it because look how, you know, the state of Texas did other men that was wrongfully convicted. So he didn't trust the justice system. And I can kind of understand what he what he meant. But at the same time, if you know you committed this crime, you you know, if you did the crime, you should do the time. And, you know, robbery has a statute limitation law. After five years, they can't charge you for that crime anymore. You know, it's just, you know, it's just a crime that goes unsolved. But it took us like additional five years after we doing a film, um, getting Isaiah out of prison. And, you know, one of the painfulest things that I had to do was go tell Isaiah here that this guy wasn't going to confess to this crime. But I told Isaiah here, we, we can't get you exonerated right now because he's not he's not going to confess and you don't have any DNA in your case. But at the same time, I can guarantee that I can try to help you make parole. And he said, anything I could do to help him, please do. And now, like I said, it took us like five years to get him parole. So once we was able to get him into a halfway house, I was able to talk to the head of parole about, you know, he got a place to go. We're going to make sure he have everything he need. And they was like, Mr. Scott, that's the only thing we need to know in order for us to kind of release him on your word alone. As long as you make sure he's taken care of properly, we allow him to make parole. And yeah, after that five years, he was able to make parole. Isaiah, he and out, he's out now living a good life. He's married now. He lives in East Texas. He loves church. Uh, he's doing real good for himself. Now, we got another case that we're actually working on now that um, the guy's been locked up for 35 years, but he made parole. And um, we, um, me and my attorney picked up his case maybe over a year ago, over a year ago, about a year and four or five months ago. But my attorney was his DNA attorney, but they denied his DNA. But what actually got him convicted is an officer lied on the stand and said that his fingerprints matched what they found at the crime scene. And once we did some digging and the DA office did some digging and we found out that the officer lied that those fingerprints didn't belong to him, we was able to get his case reopened again. And, um, took him to do his fingerprints over again. And it took them six months to come back to tell us that his fingerprints didn't take. It took them six months to tell us that, that his, that his fingerprints didn't take, that we had to retake them. So I end up, we end up getting somebody better than we had the first time to do his fingerprints. And we got his fingerprints did over again. And, I think uh, maybe a few weeks ago, we found out they came back that and it excluded him from that murder. And now we're just waiting on the district attorney's office to tell us the day he can be exonerated. So now, you know, we are looking at another exoneration under our belt after this guy have served 35 years. So that's pretty much, you know, about what House of Renewed Hope do. And that's pretty much what I do as the CEO and founder of House of Renewed Hope. And that, that is just, shoo, what a story, man. What, what, what a story. And, and what you're doing now is just, uh, 
it's just, I mean, it's amazing. And uh, so uh, I know we're about out of time. I did want to ask you, though, Mm -hmm. the gentleman that your brother met, Alonzo Hardy, I think was his name. Did you ever meet him like face to face or ever talk to him or no? Yeah, I was able to. um, I was just looking for some kind of closure. And I think that's the only way I was going to be able to get it is to have a conversation with him. So we was able to go inside of the prison and film it. Actually, it's on the Guardian web, you know, website. Yeah, you know, I was able to go in and ask him, why did it take him so long to come back and confess? He was like, for one, he said he never thought that we would be found guilty of this crime because they got rid of all the evidence. He said, man, the murder weapon and everything we used, we got away with it. So it was no way we would thought y'all would get found guilty for this crime. And I'm like, dude, you're in the state of Texas. They find anybody guilty for the smallest thing. Just imagine, you know, them, this lady saying I actually is the one that did it. And they agreed with it. And the jurors did as well. And, you know, I was like, you know, you don't know how much you destroyed my life and my kids' life for that 13 years. You know, I told him, you know, I, you know, I can forgive him, but I can't forget. Um, I let him know that I didn't like him. I thought he was a coward, you know, for not coming, com- not confessing right. earlier. And, yeah, I just thought he should have confessed earlier. I called him a coward and, and told him that. And. You know, the you know, the best thing that I told him was like after this interview is over, I get to walk outside the prison bars and jump in my car and drive off and go eat whatever kind of meal I want to eat. But now you're still in prison dressed in white and you gotta go with go eat anything these people in here prepare for you. And this is something that you deserve. And after that I just walked out and just left that behind. Like, you know, there's a chapter of my life that's closed and that, you know, I didn't get a apology from him because, you know, like I said, I thought he was a coward, but you got to understand and realize something. It's not only Alonzo that allowed this to happen. It's people in much higher positions that allowed this to happen. The judge, the prosecutor and the cops, they're in much higher position than Alonzo, and they allowed it to happen, too. So it all don't fall on Alonzo. It fall on the criminal justice system. Itself. Yeah, I mean, they, they're they all guilty. I mean, there was there's no right. evidence, you know. Uh, a short hair African-American. Yeah, you just described, like, the elders, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> the whole NFL, basketball, NBA, you know, you the average African-American guy has that kind of, you know, description. Yeah. So you describing half of the African American population in the it's world. It's ridiculous, and they couldn't find the clothes. They obviously didn't find any money or the drugs. I mean, there's no, no murder nope. weapon. I mean, and you had these officers uh, that testified on your behalf, and they wouldn't allow right. it. It just it, it blows my mind. So evident. So it's pretty obvious that back then, at least. Racism played a major factor in this. Would you agree? Oh yeah, racism. If if it if I wasn't an African American guy, if I was a white guy, you know, this thing probably wouldn't. It wouldn't have never happened. And it's crazy when people say the criminal justice system is not racist. And if they say that, they're a lie, because our criminal justice system is racist. 
and they are very biased towards African-American men and women in our criminal court system. So, yeah, race played a major part in, you know, in the decision of me being found guilty for capital murder. You know, it was, that's the only thing that played its part was race. It was the color right, of my skin. That, it's obvious, right? Because uh, even the Hispanic lady that identified you, that's all she was going by. She was being led. I, I couldn't believe that when you were telling me that story, uh, that she wasn't asked. She was, it was a statement. No, she was Crazy. told. It was a statement. It yeah, it wasn't a statement. It wasn't a question. It was a statement. This is the man that killed your husband. And she said, see. And I'm like, I would at least thought, you know, because this lady was on so many different kind of medication already. She was on high blood pressure medicine. She was on Prozac. She was on hallucination medicine. She had about eight or nine different types of medication that she was on. So I was like, why don't you, why didn't they just let this lady calm down before bringing her in when it's fresh on her mind and the only thing she wants is revenge for her husband being taken away from her, which is, I can understand she wants the person to go to jail for that crime, but don't send the wrong person to prison for the crime if you don't know it's him. You know, that's right. wrong. So, yeah, she yeah she made a major mistake. Yeah, it just, uh, and, and she was led that way, but she, like you said, she wasn't an upstanding citizen <laughs> herself. No, and, and the, yeah, and the crazy part about it, like, in trial, in trial, you would have thought her and her husband was like Barack and Michelle Obama or somebody. This is how they describe these people. They was like, oh, these individuals was at their summer home and what we call a drug house here in Dallas County. I mean, Dallas, Texas, and everywhere it's a trap house. No, that was a trap house. That was a house that sold drugs, had money and guns inside of it, and the cops found that. But they didn't they didn't they didn't bring that up into trial. It was never discussed in trial that this was a drug house. They were saying like this was a summer home. I'm like a summer home. This place is ran down. This is a a drug house. It's, no, it's not a summer home. It's a and drug she was house. never you know what it really she was is. never convicted even though they found drugs in the house? No, they was never convicted of anything. Crazy, crazy man. I, I just uh, it just Yeah. You know, once again, man, my hat's off to you for coming on the show. I think this has uh been a very important to get the word out. Um, I do have one last question for you. Do you feel now in 2022, uh, almost 2023, that the racism is as bad as it was in that area, or do you think they've learned a little bit now? I, no, I think it's worse. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's worse. Yeah. I think so it's worse a- now for sure, because, because you can see it like, you know, you, you, Every day, you know, I look on the internet or whatever, you see an African-American guy or woman being either harassed or murdered by a white officer. Right. And not only that, when I go to my P.O. box and every time I go, it's letters in there stating that they was wrongfully convicted. And that's from prior weeks ago or prior years ago. You know, it's guys just going to jail saying I'm wrongfully convicted. They didn't have enough evidence to even bring me to jail. But here I am in jail. Now I got to fight this case. You know what I mean? So I don't think it has gotten easier. I think it has gotten worse. 
For sure. But we definitely still have a lot of work to do on our criminal justice system. We got a, we got a whole lot to do. Like the, the law they said, Trump them passed, you know, last legislation before he left office. You know, there was, they should, you know, there's, there, there was, that bill is so watered down, you can't even drink it. You know what I mean? It's, it's so watered down, you yeah. can't drink it. So really didn't do anything to help us. You know what I mean? If anything, it made the toehold just that stronger and tighter. Yeah, I think us. Biden's already wrote another one and did away with that one. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I don't know, but I can look up and see. But hopefully, he has. I think he probably have too. I think I think he did do away with some of it. I don't know if they took all the verbiage out of it, but you know, some of the main key components of it, I think I won't guarantee take some any better it. at all <laughs> since he got his hands on. It. Right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> all right, buddy. Well, um, before yeah, we go, uh, uh, Christopher, can you tell the audience maybe how they can get a hold of you or if they have some, a loved one, maybe they feel that's been wrongly imprisoned or, uh, just your, maybe your socials or what have you. Yeah. You can go to www.hassarenewedhope.org. Or you can go to at Hassle Renewed Hope. That's my Twitter handle. www.hassrenewedhope.org. Or you can go to at at H Renewed Hope for my Twitter. And also on the dot uh, org, they can go. Uh, they can they can help support the cause, right? Your nonprofit. Yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can go there. You can you know donate money, and you know we we started putting up the the upcoming legislation of the laws and bills that we are trying to get passed. If they want to write a support letter to the legislation or anything we have going on, just go on the website. It'll be on there. And, you know, yeah, you know, we, we always need donations because we always, you know, having to pay for DNA testing. We always have to pay for, you know, polygraph tests. DNA tests run from anywhere from, 2,500 to 50 grand DNA testing and polygraph tests are starting at 1,500. Some of them go up to five grand as well. So uh, how has uh, Governor Abnett, uh, has, how's he been in all this? Just out of curiosity for my own. Um, he's, I mean, he's not good at all with, with none of that. No, he's not. And he, he and he's not even the one that actually passed like our compensation law, it was the governor prior to him. Who was he? Uh, uh, I can't even think of his name. I don't even like him that. Yeah, and either it's been a while. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, uh, but anyway, yeah, Greg Abbott. Nah, we don't we don't support Greg Abbott. He he's not for us. Trust me, he's he's not for the he's not for the low income people or African American people. You know he, he he you know he's rich, so he only deal with. Very rich, rich white uh, Republican. Right. I, yeah, I just because uh, sure. I've always been about that guy. So personally, so. Oh yeah, yeah. Greg Abbott, man, he sucks. Yeah, you can tell by what how, what happened to our grid and everything when we had a bad freeze last winter. You know, things just ran bad here in Texas until we get new leadership and put some people in the position that has compassion about others. It'll always be the same. Yep, you got to have passion and empathy. Absolutely. Got to have passion and empathy yep. for sure. All right, sir. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining. Folks, you've been listening to the Red Pill Current News Podcast. With your host, the Kentucky Guy. Hey, as always, God bless and God bless America.